you need to be designing continuously, not doing initiatives. So the continuous organization design requires someone or a group of people with the role responsibility and accountability to be looking at the design of the organization and flagging signals, which is the word you just mentioned, that it's time to start thinking about shifting a bit, not an initiative to do something different. Hi everyone and welcome to a brand new episode of All About HR. My name is Nelly, I'm your host and on today's episode I speak with Dr. Naomi Stanford. Naomi is an organization design practitioner and an author. During her earlier UK career she worked for several big companies such as British Airways, Marks and Spencers and Price Waterhouse. Nowadays, Naomi is freelancing as an organization design consultant and advisor. And earlier this year, the third edition of her economist book, A Guide to Organization Design came out. I'm sure that we're going to talk about that as well. But the main topic of today's conversation is going to be the importance of organizational design uh, to enable your business post-pandemic. Welcome to another episode of All About HR. Now, before we get to that, though, let me welcome Naomi to the show. Hi, Naomi. How are you? Hi. Hi. It's lovely to be here. And thanks so much for inviting me. It's always good to be talking about organization design. So it's a great delight to me. It is. It is. I'm very happy to have you, Naomi. Before we really dive into uh, today's topic, maybe you want to tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself and the work that you're doing. Sure. So a little bit about myself. Um, I've been in the organization design sphere for decades, and it's very interesting to see how it's changed over the years. I've worked in numerous different countries. I lived in America for 11 years, being an organization design external consultant there. As you said, I before I left for America, I worked for major companies in the UK. And um, when I came back, I worked for the nonprofit in the government sector. I left the government sector about two years ago now. So in the course of being an internal consultant, an external consultant, and um, working in multiple sectors, I've also worked in different countries. So China, the Middle East, America, Europe. And so I've seen a, a huge number of different countries and organizations and the way different cultures impact on things and the interaction within organizations of their relationships with suppliers, with partner organizations and with mm. their workforce, of course. It's a very dynamic field right now, particularly given the geopolitical climate and, and the things to do with climate change, which are all impacting organizations radically. Totally apart from the pandemic, it's a sort of huge storm of things for people to think about very rapidly. Yes, absolutely. I think we, we will actually circle back to that a bit later uh, during our conversation, uh, Naomi. First, I would like to start with talking a little bit more about organizational design as, as a discipline. So maybe we can start with how can we define organizational design in simple terms? You are asking the impossible there. I can, I can just tell you how to how to define it how to not define it in simple terms organization design is not about the organization chart 
And so when you say it's not, a, when I say it's not about the organization chart, an organization chart tells us things, but it isn't, doesn't tell us about an organization. And so if you start, if you start from the point of view of what an organization chart does and doesn't tell us, you do in fact start to get a good impression of what organization design is. Because an organization chart does not tell us how people interact with each other. It does not tell us how the work flows. It does not tell us about all the people you employ in your organization as contractors, as part-time workers who are perhaps working for a partner organization and have a third-party contract with you. It does not tell you about the technologies that you're using to deliver the work. It does not tell you about the relationships with supplier organizations. And organization design is about all those things that the organization chart does not tell us, as well as the much smaller numbers of things that the organization chart does tell us, which is basically who reports to who and how many are on your direct payroll and pot potentially your hierarchy and grading structure. So you can see if you start in simple terms, think about what the organization chart doesn't tell us. Think about what it does tell us list it all out and the totality is what organization design is concerned with i like that approach i like that approach of of, of thinking of okay what does it not uh, tell us and what does it tell us and then you know we, we are going to get a definition in simple terms so thank you for that naomi now sometimes organizational design processes they can have a yeah not necessarily a great a reputation, even though unfairly so. So I would like to perhaps get rid of uh, some of the myths associated with, with organizational design. So in your opinion, what are some of these myths? Well, the major one is that it's about the organization chart. The thing about organization design is what you're trying to do all the time is make all the different elements work together smoothly. It's a bit like trying to construct a, a jigsaw puzzle, but that isn't a tr tremendously good analogy because that's a fixed thing and, a, a, and an organization is constantly shifting. So you're trying to make sure that all the sh shifting parts, say introducing a new IT system or um, changing a supplier contract, all of those moving parts are going to still work together effectively. To deliver your product or service. So one of the, one of the myths, apart apart from the chart myth, is that it's about people only. It's not just about people. In fact, it, it, if you design around people, that is quite a dangerous and risky thing to do. It's about, in my terms, workflow and how work is organized and the decisions you make around are people going to do the work or is it going to be outsourced or is automation going to do the work? And then you start to think about how are you going to get the linkages? I guess your question about the myth is quite interesting because people, I don't know if it's expressed as a myth, they talk about an organization design as their organization. But that is very, very difficult to define and design. If I start to ask you, are your suppliers in the organization or out of the organization? Are the third party contractors that you use part of the organization or not? That it becomes very blurred. So organization design is about organizations and the way they interact as much as it is about your organization. 
And just a small illustrative example, at the time I worked for British Airways, all the check-in agents in the airport wore British Airways uniforms, but none of them was employed by British Airways. They were employed by a third party. Now, they're presenting the face of British Airways, and they've got to act as if they are British Airways, but they're not. Now, are they part of your organisation, or are they not part of your organisation? Well, I mean, if... If I would have to answer that, I would say, yes, they are part of my organization. But I I guess that every organization uh, views this differently, judging by your question. Or am, I, uh, or am I wrong there? Well, they do judge it differently. Because now if you take that to the next step, and I think, say, on training programs, who, who is going to provide those check-in agents who are not employed, employed by British Airways with their training to do the job? Is it the, their employer or is it British Airways or is it some partnership? And how is that factored into financial planning? And what does the service level contract tell you about that? And so you can the organisation design linkages and boundaries are very critical. So the, the myth that it's about our organisation needs, if it is, if you can describe it as a myth, needs exploring because it's actually about interactions between and among your organization and other organizations so that that's quite critical <laughs> the other the third myth is that leaders know how to design which i won't go and explore that at the moment but i leaders very often do not know what is going on at the grassroots of the organization and there have been some horrendous failures when leaders uh, the, the volkswagen emissions thing was a sort of thing that was because leaders didn't have a close grip on what was going on in a totally different part of the organisation that they were much less likely to be exposed to in their daily work. Relying on leaders to design, to make organisation design decisions is also rather risky. Part of me feels that here we have we have a material enough to do an entire episode uh, around myths uh, associated with organisational design almost, uh, Naomi. That's probably right. I think I once wrote an article on the, I think, the 10 myths of organisation design, but it was quite a while ago. I'll have to look yeah. it up. And yeah, please do. Now, one more thing before we are going to uh, dive in a little bit more into the actual uh, enabling of organisations through uh, organisational design. But sometimes when I speak to people, I can get some contrasting views as well regarding design around work versus designing around people and talent, on which you just touched a little bit as well so i can guess the answer maybe a bit here but what is your perspective when it comes to that so designing around work versus designing around people and talent what's your perspective i always design around work mm. because people are very shifting and you can do the you can deliver the work in all sorts of different ways and the ways that you choose to deliver the work then affect the type of people that you need and the talent and capabilities that you're looking for, and you know decisions around whether to automate or not. And you can see that happening in a very straightforward example is warehousing. If you imagine a warehouse, say an Amazon warehouse or any large distributor warehouse, the, the delivery of the goods into the dispatch area used to be done by people and forklift trucks. And so that takes people who can drive forklift trucks. 
Now, if you did carried on designing your warehouse around people who could drive forklift trucks or recognize a barcode with their hand scanner or what have you, then you are going to become non-competitive with the distributors who are using robots, employing quarter the number of actual people, having very good data analytics around the warehouse stock, etc., that you can't get with a workforce in the same in the same slick way if you're reliant on prior technology solutions. The, if you start to think about the work and what's the best way of delivering the work for our particular organization, then you can start to lay out all the steps and the activities and not in huge detail, but you know enough to give you some visibility and see whether you prefer to do it by people or by outsourcing or by automation or not even not do it at all. And you can see very different decisions. And the airlines are interesting examples because you've got the budget airlines who take one view of what the work is in terms of delivery of it and the high-end airlines that take a different view so that you'll find that the way the the actual work is exactly the same. They've got to deliver people from A to B safely. That's all they're doing. But that deliver people from A to B safely is very, very differently done by the different airlines. And they employ different proportions of staff to each activity because they're making you know, quality over cost, over time, over automation decisions. Until you know how you want to organise the work, you don't really have a good handle on the people. And organising and designing with people in mind exposes you to huge risks. Think how difficult organisations are finding it now with um, massive sickness due to COVID and how they're trying to fill the gaps and how the notion of work is changing as people realise they can work from home. And I guess you've heard that terrible phrase, the great resignation of people changing jobs. If you designed around those people who are now leaving, you're going to be in great difficulty. If you designed around, here's how we could do the work and here's how we could do the work. If our entire workforce left, then we could then we'd be in a more resilient position. Yeah, I mean, I think this, this, makes, uh, this makes a lot of sense. Uh, especially given the fact that, that yeah, people... Uh, people they can they can change jobs they can decide to leave or they move around a lot so uh i think this makes makes a lot of sense to design around the work now naomi you mentioned it a few times already because these are intense times on a lot of different levels of course for uh i would say every organization uh, out there so how in these times can organizational design uh, be a strategic enabler and uh, how can it uh, not uh, turn into a, a stumbling block what are your thoughts on that? that that's a very good question and there's a very interesting article in last week's economist on supply chains and supply chain disruption and supply chain resilience which kind of looks at, at that in terms of the network effect of things happening and that how how organization design can be an enabler you so if you're in a big organization, first of all, look around and see all the people who've got the title word design in their job title. So you'll find there are enterprise designers and graphic designers and communications designers and software designers and customer experience designers and what have you. The, the design field in big organizations is, is multidisciplined. Now, you've got a strategic advantage if all of that community of multidisciplined designers is working together 
collaboratively and not independently because then they're going to see the organization from their multiple lenses mm. because to to be strategic you may you may have a strategy that you want to speed up your supply chain i i know i'm focusing on supply chain but it is a huge issue at the moment you want or you want to have a, a more resilient one a lot of that can be looked at through a technology lens but it also through a legal lens and because it's a, a political decision as much as anything and a regulatory decision and a cost decision. So it's looked at through a financial lens. So if you get in the room all the people who see supply chain efficiency through their lenses and you start to think, how can we design this together more effectively? Then you've got a, a strategic advantage. You have a strategic disadvantage when someone says, oh, how can we speed up this bills of lading bit of the supply chain in isolation? The whole thing about good design is it's trying to look as far as possible at the system and the network nodes and how the bits of the system interact with other bits, both within and into the outside of the organisation, into the wider ecosystem. And the um, the article in The Economist I mentioned does, does look closely at that, and a lot of researchers are looking at that network effect, the impact of things. Mm. Yeah, very interesting, and I think a very relevant example, that one of the supply chain. So thank you thank you for sharing uh, that. I think it really makes it more, a bit more tangible as well for, for our listeners. Now, Naomi, from an HR perspective, how, how can organizations organizational design enable us to to be prepared for the next let's call it crisis or let's call it the next challenge because i find that a little bit less daunting well there are there are lots of ways actually that they can the hr the profession can start to look strategically at the design of the organization first of all if they've got very high quality data on the current workforce and they're very familiar with the strategy in as much as you can have a strategy at this sort of turbulent time. Then you can start to ask questions about if we wanted to deliver this strategy, have we got the skills and talents to do it? But you could also be saying if we quickly change strategy, then what would happen? So I don't know how many HR functions run scenario planning workshops with multidisciplinary people. You know, if if we lost half the workforce to another pandemic or if we suddenly, well, I guess most people in across the globe have had to shut down operations in some part of the world at some point. And you see that currently people making decisions on if we had to shut down our operation in Russia, what what is the impact on our workforce and how do we deal with that? Now, that, decision, that um, scenario that people are currently wrestling with could have been played out ages ago in scenarios, and that would help make it resilient. Cut now, you'd be you'd have more ability to respond with that with less of a knee-jerk reaction. But I haven't met many HR functions who are running scenario planning. And the reason the, the reasons I've been given is, which I think are ridiculous reasons, but when I've tried to um, suggest it, is that people don't want to be scared. So they don't even want to think that they might have to do X or Y or, you know, be, we'll be hit by a meteorite. They don't want to consider what a potential scenario. And that means that you're not resilient when, it, when something vaguely similar happens. Mm. So running scenarios can be very helpful because then you can look at your data, going back to the data point, and if it's current and reliable and valid, you can start to see if X happened, have we got the workforce who can deal with it in terms of skills and capabilities, 
in terms of numbers, in terms of location, in terms of competency levels, etc. But another interesting thing about workforce data, it, it tells you things that you ask for. It doesn't tell you things that you don't ask for. And in one organisation I worked in, I, I was just randomly chatting to people and I realised that a lot of them had incredible skills that we weren't using. So, you know, they might be a champion rose grower, which in fact one person actually was, or they might be running a parents teacher association at school or being a football coach or any of these things, which take huge skill and we don't know about them. And those skills are actually, you can play them into the organisation should the situation arise. And we don't value the skills that people deploy outside of the organisation. And what I've as, as much because we don't necessarily know about them or we don't think to ask or consider it irrelevant. But what was so interesting about the pandemic two years was we started to see ordinary day-to-day -day people exhibiting incredible skills that they've never been exhibited in the workforce. And you can see it now in Ukraine, the number yeah. of people I've met who are helping mobilise stuff going to Ukraine. You know, you think, God, that's a fantastic logistical exercise. And that logistics thing, they're not using in their day-to-day -day work in the workplace. So thinking about what we're not asking of the workforce that isn't in the data could also be very helpful and, and develop massive levels of resilience. Yeah, absolutely. I think that is a great point, uh, a great point that you're, that you're making there, thinking of that what we're not asking and how tremendously helpful that can potentially be. Um, very uh, good point there, Naomi. Perhaps briefly, a few a few things for HR practitioners. So what would you say are some of the signs in their organization uh, to look out for that could indicate that it's time to embark on an organizational design initiative? Well, that's another kind of hot button. <laughs> because you need to nowadays, currently, be designing continuously not doing initiatives. So the continuous organization design requires someone or a group of people with the role, responsibility and accountability to be looking at the design of the organization and flagging signals, which is the word you just mentioned, that it's time to start thinking about shifting a bit, not an initiative to do something different. So, for example, one that I've used, I think, in the book, Designing Organisations, the, this, this new book, Designing Organisations, Why It Matters and Ways to Do It Well, is about the semiconductor industry. We've known for years and years that rare metals are getting rarer and rarer. That's why they're rare. And now the, the rare metals for making semiconductors and batteries and stuff are in countries which are rather conflict-ridden. Now, that weak signal from 10, I think it's 10 years ago when that started to be highlighted, nobody has done anything about till now. But if you have a group of people who are skilled at looking at what are called weak signals, and in the book I do mention these weak signals, and you start to think, oh, that's an interesting signal. Do we need to start thinking about it? then you don't need an initiative. You're already beginning to prepare the organisation. And in fact, there was, I don't know if you remember the year 2000, when there was that big kind of anxiety that all the computers would fail mm. because of the 
way they've been programmed. For yeah, the, the millennium. Yeah. But that was known years in advance. And that was a continuous organization design piece of work years in advance, continuous. And then on the, what was it, the 1st of January 2000, nothing happened. Yeah. It was all fine, you know, because people had been continuously looking at it. And that, that level of looking is really, really important when you're picking things up. You know, now, now, if you look at the current situation, are we looking at what countries might falter now that are that are partners in our in our work or countries that are going to have to respond very differently? How is that going to impact? Now, those are actually strong signals. You know, how is Germany going to manage an oil embargo, for example? So that's a strong signal, but a a weaker signal might be how is the um, hydrogen um, industry building up in countries where they might want to uh, accelerate it, that sort of thing. Are we doing anything about recruiting people with hydrogen skills into our organisation to change our buildings? You know, there, there, there are things which you're, we should be thinking about years in advance. Mm. We, may, we know we don't need a hydrogen skilled person right now, potentially, but we do know who could possibly be interested in it but you know that's the sort of thing that we need to be asking yeah absolutely and that comes back again i don't know a lot about hydrogen so take that <laughs> example with a pinch of salt i think that comes back again naomi to the to these different scenarios and the scenario planning right that you mentioned earlier i mean as soon as i think if people are ready and willing to to talk about to talk and to think about possible scenarios then i think a logical consequence that would roll out of that would then be what are the signs we can start to look out for and are these weak signs or are these stronger signs because you've thought about various scenarios and you can i guess a couple various different signs to each scenario so i think it comes back to that uh, or not yeah there are other ways of doing it but there, there you can get a lot of help there's a very good you know organization like the institute of the futures and the world future mm. society and, and most governments have future forecasting groups working on future forecasts and some organizations i've worked in have had what they called horizon scanners and that it, that would be a great skill for HR people to develop that horizon scanning capability. Yeah, absolutely. Perhaps it can be a new course here at the Academy to Innovate HR at some point. <laughs> Um, oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Slightly moving tack again here because I wanted to also talk a bit about the key principles for effective organizational design, starting with uh, perhaps briefly, Naomi, the five key principles for effective organizational design. Could we maybe run through them? Yeah, sure. So the first one that I had in my book, and I, the book is based on these five principles, is that it, the, the design is driven by the purpose of the organization and the strategy. So you're really thinking, and if this applies with your at working at redesigning just a team, what is the purpose of the team? What is the purpose of the business unit? What is the purpose of the whole organization? It's really, really important to know. And a lot of people don't know. And I've had some great discussions in redesigning HR departments when, or functions when I say what is the purpose of your HR function and that discussion can go on all day and until you're crystal clear on what is the purpose of that function or that department or that piece of activity you're not going to be able to design it it's rather like trying to design a machine and you don't know what it's supposed to do is it supposed to dry your hair or is it supposed to take you from A to B you can't design something without knowing what the purpose of the design is. 
And you need to also have agreement on that, what is the purpose. And that can also take time because if you think about the purpose of an HR function, it could be to recruit the right people into the right place at the right time. But it could be to ensure diversity, equality and inclusion as a, as a purpose. Or it could be to make sure that, make the, that good work is offered to all employees. But they're all completely different design possibilities if you're actually trying to design an organisation with those different purposes in mind. Because you'd have different policies and different activities. And you may want to say, well, it's about all of those things. But if you want to say all that, then you need a statement that does simply say all that, but very straightforwardly in a way that can, people can follow. But in, in most organisations, there's a bit of a, particularly around HR, a bit of a fuzziness around what is the purpose of HR, um, and which is why, you know, you then get the sort of wonderful statements about why can't we have a seat at the table? Mm. Um, that sort of, you know, how can we be strategic? Anyway, that, don't go there either. So the, I've mentioned this second principle about systems thinking. HR people and anyone working in organisation design really needs to know about systems thinking and systems approaches and what is a system and be able to understand that an impact, something that you change in one part of this organisation has an impact somewhere else. And you can see that even at a team level. If one of your team members leaves your team and you get a new person in, everybody will see that the work is being done differently by virtue of that person's personality and everyone adjusts around it. And they're not necessarily doing that consciously, but the newcomer has effectively redesigned the team. And that those mi micro designs are going on all the time. And if you don't think about those systemic impacts all the time, then you're not going to be able to design something that is is ultimately well-functioning. It will have glitches in it. And the third principle, is, and again, we've mentioned this, is about the future-oriented mindset. You're designing for, for an unknown future. And because it's unknown, you have to be prepared for a number of possibilities. So you're trying to look at what prepares us for an unknown future. And the unknown could be, you know, immediate it, it could be that something happens right now like a gas leak somewhere and the road blows up which you know in London that happened a few years ago and the underground station had to be evacuated and all the office buildings around the pipe had to be evacuated and we're out of commission for three weeks and and so that thing about what could happen just going repeating the thing about the scenario can be quite small but it can also be potentially quite major. And building in the thinking that this could happen, what are the skills we need if it does? Because other things will happen which potentially aren't exactly the same, but are similar enough to use that, those resilient attributes. The, the fourth principle is about the design processes about conversations and social interactions. And again, that doesn't show up on the organisation chart, but there's some very good software which designers are using now to map influencers and to um, look at the, how social networks interact. And in, in the old days when I started in the, well, the, not the very start, because when I very start, first started work, people were allowed to smoke in the workplace. 
Mm. But after a few years, people had to go outside and smoke. Now, smoking is a great leveler because you go and have a cigarette and you go to this area outside your office or your workplace called smokers area. And you meet people from right across the organisation because what they've got in common is smoking. But then they start to chat about the work and then you've got a social network. And that social network can be really, really powerful and influential. Now, whether, you know, whether I, I haven't actually connected smokers networks to levels of influence, but you can see levels of influence are not and interactions are not related to hierarchical communication. They're running up within all of that all the time and can be incredibly powerful and so those informal conversations are as much as a part of the design trying to pick up on them as the formal and the, uh, the fifth principle i've already mentioned is is the continuous design process it's not an initiative it's not a mm. one-off it's a continuous maintenance shift shaping sort of thing on a continuous basis thank you for that uh, Naomi and I, and I, and I uh, by the way I loved the, uh, the the smokers example and I think you're actually you're actually right on that one I've, I've seen it in various companies I've worked in especially in in France and uh, yeah it's definitely something powerful happening there while people are going for a cigarette break I have a uh... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> which is not to be underestimated i think i have one uh, one more question and and then we're going to to wrap up because um when we're talking about organization design and when we're having this ongoing initiative what tells us that we are on track can you maybe briefly say something about that yeah that also is a good question because on track sometimes shifts and Again, it's the, the the issue with knowing whether you're on track is is having both the short term and the slightly longer term view simultaneously. So you're looking for indicators, and you organisations do collect a lot of indicators of of customer satisfaction, of productivity, of sickness and absence, blah blah blah. And what you can start to see is patterns in those if you look across a selection of the data. And one of the things that I tried an experiment with in one organization fairly recently was to look at patterns of sickness and absence in relation to change initiatives. Because I wanted to know whether the number of things going on which were shifting the context was having an impact on workforce sickness, which it was. But that meant, because we had, we, I, we knew that there were a lot of projects, and these were actual projects, so they had a beginning and an end date, going on at the same time. We were able to shift some of the milestones of the projects to even, even them out so people weren't being impacted by all these changes at the same time, which was obviously being very stressful for them. But it, having the data to map to the two completely different things, the project schedule plus sickness and absence historically, mm. was, was an eye-opener for some people. And that sort of question around how do you know you're on track, you're, you know you're on track when some of the important indicators, like sickness and absence is an important indicator for people in an organisation. But other important indicators are things like machine failures or um, productivity drops or financial slippage or, or stuff like that. Mm. So knowing what your original, your baseline indicators of effectiveness are is part one. Part two, then, is is the 
is the design intended to improve those indicators or, or at least maintain them? Are they staying stable or are they dropping? If they're dropping, what in relation to what else, if you see what, what, I, what I mean? Mm -hmm. And then if we want to bring in some new indicators, so saying you've opened up a new product line or another customer segment, how are you going to start building that up and looking? So having clarity on what you consider indicators of effectiveness. And one, one of the indicators of effectiveness, which is kind of interesting, is customer satisfaction or, you know, the, or the sort of social networks reports on you, you know, who you, they come into your outlet and then they get furious at something and how the way that's dealt with could be an indicator of effectiveness. Some of it, some of the indicators of effectiveness are fairly random, but they, they, looking for patterns and I do in the book talk about patterns a lot about how you look for patterns in data yeah yeah I think that is a perfect bridge for us to to wrap up this conversation and before I do so where can people find your book the book is on um well in all good bookshops as they say <laughs> yes it's available in heart and as a, as a paperback is available as on kindle I'm not, I don't think it's available just as an audio book yet, but it's very accessible. And if you go to the profile books who publish for The Economist, they have it on their website. And then there's a button that says click here for suppliers. So it's, it's, um, it's not difficult to get hold of. No, and, and, and we will actually also include it in the information when we, when we uh, publish this podcast episode. Naomi, I want to, I want to thank you very much for um, being here today with me on this episode and for sharing uh, all your really uh, interesting insights and examples with me. Thank you. You're very welcome. I've enjoyed it a lot. You've got great questions. Made me think, which I always love. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in again to another episode of All About HR. I hope you enjoyed this conversation just as much as I did. And if you did, don't forget to like this video, subscribe to our channel and share this episode with a friend. Thank you very much. And I see you very soon again for a new episode. Goodbye.